Well, last week we began a Christmas series entitled The Story of Christmas. And the story that we are looking at, it's not simply the story of Christ in the manger, but it's really the story of the entire Bible. In fact, even when we, when we uh, do our live nativity, we, we make it a point not to just stop at the manger because Christmas means so much more than that. It is the story of the entire Bible from start to finish. See, in the totality of the Christmas story, or the story of the Bible, we see from our passage the ultimate truth that Christ's victory is the dragon's defeat. This battle that has been waged ever since the beginning of of the Scriptures, and we read of the promise of the child that would be delivered to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. And here in vivid detail in John's vision, we see the reality of this taking place. And last week we began by looking at two of three observations from verses 6 which involved the main characters of chapter 12. And uh, we didn't get quite as far as we, we should have gotten. So in your bulletin, you see the title of today, verses 7 to 12, is The Great War in, in Heaven. And we're going to get to some of that today, but we're going to actually um, finish up what we were supposed to look at last week. And we saw the two characters that we began to be introduced to were the woman and the dragon. And before we move on to this great war depicted in heaven, I want us to focus on the third character who is the main character of the story. And that's the child. We saw last week in verses 1-2, to the great sign that appeared in heaven. And our first observation was the child has come through much travail. We even saw that depicted in our Micah reading this morning. And then we saw last week in verses 3 and 4, we were introduced to this great dragon. Our second observation was the dragon sought to devour the child. The reason why verses 1 and 2 is a great sign, and verse 3, even though the dragon is ferocious and fierce, it is simply a sign, it is because John is reminding his readers that though the situation looks grim and persecution and oppression is there, the greater reality is that God's people have given birth to a Messiah. And that Messiah is destined to reign with His people. They may not be reigning now on earth, but that is the destiny of everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. So we're going to pray this morning, and we're going to look at verses 5 and 6, and then continue on to this great war in heaven that is, that is uh, depicted here. But we're going to look at this third character that we're introduced to in chapter 12, the child. Uh, so let's pray this morning.
Father, I pray that you would guide us in our study. Lord, would you indeed show us how we are to live in light of your victory? Lord, it's not about knowing all the details and being able to understand every little thing that we read of in the book of Revelation. Lord, some things are hard to understand and can seem confusing. Lord, what we must walk away with is that Christ is victorious over the dragon. And Lord, because of that, we can live confidently in Jesus. And Lord, this Christmas season, as we celebrate with family and friends, and Lord, there's many joys during the Christmas season. There's also many sorrows of loved ones that have passed away and difficulties that the holidays kind of bring out. Lord, we thank You that through all of the difficulty, all of the travail, Christ is victorious. And we walk in that confidence. So guide us, I pray, this morning. Lord, as many are tired from a busy weekend, I pray that You would just give us the spiritual strength to be able to look at Your Word that You would illumine our eyes and our understanding. In Jesus' name, Amen. We see a third observation from verses 5 and 6. The child has come through much travail. Number two, the dragon sought to devour the child. But thirdly, third observation, the child is victorious. The child is victorious. Look at verse 5. The dragon's hovering, looking to attack the woman. It says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Verse 5 shows us in a nutshell that Christ's mission was accomplished. His mission for coming to earth, it was entirely accomplished. We see that the child was born. She gave birth to a male child. Now if you're reading this in, in, in in the Greek from which we have our English translations, it would be, she gave birth to a son, a male or a male child. Exodus 2.2, and we're going to see as we continue in Exodus 12, many allusions to the Exodus story. And there in the midst of Pharaoh saying, kill all of the babies two years of age, or, or kill all of the babies that are, that are born male, In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it uses the same exact word for male baby. She gave birth to a male baby, Exodus 2.2. 
And it's reminding us that this greater rescuer than Moses, this greater one who Moses simply pointed to, would be born in similar fashion under much oppression and travail. And yet would accomplish its mission. She gave birth to a, not just a child, but it was a male son. This gives us evidence that this child was destined to rule. You see, Satan, the great dragon, wanted to usurp the rightful rule of Christ. But it is the child who would rule. In fact, the text says one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is in direct fulfillment to what Psalm chapter 2 says concerning the coming Messiah. David writes, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This child would rule. Now it didn't seem that way to those who were originally receiving the message of Revelation. As they, the, the churches we read about in chapters 2 and 3, as they are going through all of this hardship. And it doesn't really even seem that way today in the 21st century. But the child is destined to rule, his rule will be unbreakable, he will shepherd his people. That's the the literal translation of rule there. He will shepherd His people and He will not let a single enemy escape. It's interesting, and you don't need to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, one of the churches that received the book of Revelation was the church in Thyatira. They were going through much tribulation and much difficulty. And this is what, in John's vision, Jesus says to this church. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So it's not just Jesus ruling, it's his people with him. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That's the destiny of believers, folks. That Jesus, the child that we uh, proclaim to, to the community through the live nativity, the child that we sang about this morning, he is the rightful ruler of everything that is. It's not the 2024 uh, presidential candidates. It's not any world rulers that are here or that may come. Jesus 
is the rightful ruler of this world. But then verse 5 says, he, uh, the, uh, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child, or and her child, was caught up to God and to His throne. You may say, Pastor Adam, there's a lot that, that's left out there from being born to ascending to God. And you're right, what this is talking about here is the child was born, the child was destined to rule, and the child ascended to God. This is the mission and the life of Christ that is portrayed in a nutshell here. Not every detail is meant to be given. This is a vision, and think about when you have a dream and, and you have certain things that are, that are um, in your dream, and, and sometimes those things are even out of order. This is similar to, to John's vision here that, that the truth that is being conveyed is Jesus came, fulfilled what He was called to do, and then ascended to God. The dragon could not stop Him. It's like what Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Jesus today, while He is not ruling on a throne physically in this world, Jesus is ruling at the right hand of the throne of God. It's what we say, and you've heard me say from the pulpit many times, the already not yet of what Christ has accomplished, that already He is ruling, already He has brought salvation, but there is still not yet the fullness of all that He will bring and the fullness of His rule that we will experience. But Jesus has perfectly fulfilled His mission. And in light of the reality that the child is victorious, that Christ's mission has been accomplished, we then read in verse 6 that the woman is preserved. God's people can rest secure. In verse 6, as the child is caught up to God and to His throne, it says, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, this is really confusing. What in the world is this talking about? And there's no shortage of interpretations and opinions on this passage. And my purpose here is not to unpack all of those interpretations or to... Um, to try to, to tell you what conclusion to come to. I have my own conclusions and things I'm still studying because uh, this is a complex passage. But the ultimate meaning that we're to take away from this passage is not complex at all. It is simple enough for a five-year-old to understand. You see, this woman 
is preserved, as we look at verse 6, in the midst of danger. The woman fled into the wilderness. I don't know about you, but when you see the word flee or fled, you usually don't think of happy thoughts, right? This is where the already not yet, we see that playing out and we see it playing out today because Jesus has accomplished his mission. He's at the right hand of the throne of God ruling from on high, but yet the woman is still having to flee. There's already what Christ has accomplished, but yet there's still more to come. This woman flees into the wilderness. So we see, first of all, the woman fled. This in and of itself is a word of danger. Why? Because this dragon is still on the loose, right? It didn't get the child, but it's still on the loose. As you read the Old Testament and you continue to read the New Testament, you see how the the story of Scripture connects together so intricately and so interestingly. Did you know that this word flee is the same exact word in Matthew 2.13 when the angel tells Joseph, we had uh, Eric who was Joseph and he talked about this in, in uh, his narrative in the, in the nativity. The angel tells Joseph, rise Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Why? Because you remember when Jesus was born, how was the dragon who was hovering, what was he doing? He was using Herod to try to destroy the child. We see in biblical redemptive history how this passage of Revelation has and is playing out. This is not simply future things to come. This is past, present, and future. Revelation 12. Jesus had to flee. His people flee. Now where did this woman flee? She fled to the wilderness. Now we're not there yet, but the... the, the, uh, what we see in verse 6 is parallel to what we're going to see in verse 14. The book of Revelation, throughout the book, it looks at the same thing from different points of view to give different perspectives and to say the same thing yet in greater detail. We read that all throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation is not simply a linear progressive book. It's saying things from different angles. She flees to the wilderness. Now this, the wilderness is a familiar place for God's people. For instance, you think again, looking at how Scripture ties together. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 15, we read of Moses again. When Pharaoh finds out Moses is trying to be Israel's rescuer and he, he sees a slave getting beaten by, by, a, um, by one of Pharaoh's um, 
taskmasters. And what does Moses do? Well, he kills the taskmaster, but Pharaoh finds out, and Moses flees to the wilderness. We read in Scripture that Israel is no stranger to the wilderness, right? Let me show you just one passage concerning Israel's exposure to the wilderness. The Lord your God who goes before you will Himself fight for you, just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. This is, this is Moses speaking to the next generation, the generation that we're reading about in Joshua that's going into the promised land. And he's saying to this next generation, you see, have seen how your parents and yourselves have been provided and protected for in the wilderness. We're not going to turn there, but we read later in the Old Testament of Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, verses 3-9, to you remember the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. And fire comes down from heaven on Elijah's sacrifice. And it's a great victory for, um, for the people of God, for, for Elijah, and to show the one true God. But, but then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill Elijah. And Elijah flees into the wilderness where he's fed by God. Do you catch a familiar theme as we come to Revelation 12? God's people are fleeing into the wilderness. The funny thing with the wilderness, though, is that it was also a dangerous place throughout the Scriptures. For instance, we've already read a passage in Deuteronomy that talks about how God carried them like a son in the wilderness. But look at the danger of the wilderness and yet God still protecting His people. Deuteronomy 8, verses 15-16, to again on the screen. This is God saying, "...who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Wow. That is exactly what God is doing in Revelation 12. In verse 6, the people of God are promised that He will protect them. He will provide for them in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the danger of the dragon. And why does He do this? 
It's exactly what Jesus says in Revelation 2 and 3. That He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. That's why Jesus all throughout Revelation 2 to 3 says to the churches, to Him who overcomes. And then He gives different promises to the churches. Folks, in the Christian life, it is so easy to say, you know what, I'm just going to give up. You know what, it's just too hard. You know what, I feel like I'm in this dry wilderness. But we see from Genesis to Revelation, God always protects and provides for His people. That's not to say that lives are not lost. We're going we're to see, and we've already, uh, if you read through Revelation, you see from the very beginning that lives are lost. But what we're talking about here is an ultimate provision. That even loss of physical life simply means rule with God. We later read in the wilderness that even Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Again, the dragon's attempt to dethrone the Messiah. But she was preserved. The woman here in verse 6 is preserved in the midst of danger, or or, uh, she's preserved in the midst of danger and preserved by none other than God Himself. Notice that this wilderness in verse 6 is a place prepared by God. Even the wilderness is a place preserved by God. Now, I would much rather prefer a nice spot by a a flowing stream with fruit trees and nice grass. That's what I would much rather have God prepare for me. But here we see, as God's people are aliens and strangers and exiles in this world, That the streams and flowing grass and all of those things come from our relationship with God and we look forward to that in the age to come. Because now we are in the wilderness. But God has prepared a place for His people. God will indeed provide for His people and God has even planned the times for His people. The text here at the end of verse 6 says, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Again, there's much discussion about what does the 1,260 days mean? Is that, uh, how do we take that? And I am not going to get into all of that with you this morning. But one thing that we do see is that if you take a time and times and half a time, which refers back to Daniel. You cut that in half. You have about 1,260 days. Some people take that period as a literal 1,260 days. Some people take that as so many other numbers in the, in the book of Revelation are as, as symbolic periods of time. But no one doubts that this is a reference to Daniel. And what I want to tell you this morning is that God has planned the times for His people. If you come away from this passage more interested in a timeline 
then the sovereign God who has the times in His hands, there's a problem. God has ordained the times for His people. We need not cower in fear. Whether there's a Republican president or a Democrat president or an independent president or there's a United States of America or whatever it is, God's people need not fear. So what's the application here? God's people are in God's hands. It's as simple as that. God's people are in God's hands. Are you a follower of Jesus this morning? If you are, then you are in God's hands. Are you not a follower of Jesus? Then that means this morning that you're a follower of the dragon. Oh, that you would come to Christ to see Jesus exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And if you are a follower of Jesus, that you would see that despite what circumstances, what spiritual battles you face, you are in God's hands. So now we're done with last Sunday. (laughs) I just for a few minutes... Uh, want to get into this war in heaven with you. In verses 7 and 8, we read of the dragon's defeat in the heavenlies. It says in verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The dragon is defeated in the heavenlies. And again, this is is a vision that John is having. And what we see in this vision is that this is a spiritual battle ultimately. And we know of the reality of spiritual battles, do we not? What does Ephesians 6.12 say? It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Folks, there is a, a, a spiritual realm that we know not of. And here we see a spiritual battle in John's vision. And in this battle, war arose. Now, in my personal opinion, I think that in verses 7 and 8, we are seeing a spiritual battle that mirrors the physical battle that we read of in verse 5, during the ministry of Jesus, and, and as Jesus goes to the cross and then He ascends, that, that there's this vision of a, a mirrored spiritual battle. I'm not the only one that, that believe, believes uh, this. Uh, one one uh, statement from another 
uh, individual says, Revelation 12, 1 through 5 has explained primarily what has occurred on earth in the person of Jesus. Whereas Michael reflects Jesus' earthly victory as his representative in the heavenly sphere. And we'll just talk a little bit about that. In verses 7 and 8, we see these spiritual armies. We see Michael and his angels. It says they were fighting against the dragon. Michael is seen in the Old Testament as the prince or the leader of God's covenant people. In fact, this, is, uh, this type of, of spiritual uh, warfare is not without precedent. We read in Daniel 10.13, remember Daniel's praying, and he's praying for a while, and, and an angel comes to him and says that the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and there, was no, and there is no one who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. There was even spiritual warfare from an angel coming to deliver a message in answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel 12.1 talks about Michael as the great prince who has charge of your people. Talking to Daniel. In Jude chapter 9 in the New Testament, says Michael the archangel contended with the devil over the body of Moses even. So we read that there's spiritual battle but, uh, on an individual level as a Christian, but also a heavenly battle. Battles. We read about here, it says they fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So that is the who Michael and the heavenly angels in this vision are fighting against. Again, what's interesting here and what is to be an encouragement to us as it was an encouragement to the churches in the first century is that here it says Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. So who's on the offensive here? Michael and the angels. That would be a great encouragement to the people of God. Why? Well, if you look at, which we're not going to do this morning for time, but you look back at chapter 11 and verse 7, you look forward at chapter 13 and verse 7, you see that when it comes to the saints, it says the beast wages war on the saints, but here it is Michael that's the initiator of the battle in the heavenly realm. You see, things are not always as they seem. Seems like we're on the losing end so many times, doesn't it? God's people are on the losing end as strangers and exiles in a culture that is now dominated, in a world that is dominated by the prince of the power of the air. But that, my friend, is not true reality. Why? Because verse 8 shows us that there was a decisive defeat. But he was defeated. Man, strike up the band, 
start the fireworks, he was defeated. You see, the defeat at the cross mirrors this defeat in the heavenlies. Satan could not prevail. In fact, I don't know, I'm, uh, we preach from the ESV, I don't know what translation you have, but the NIV or the New American Standard, it says, but he was not strong enough. The CSB or the New King James says, but he or they could not prevail. All of those are accurate translations of that word. Satan was simply not strong enough to overcome the heavenly army. He was defeated. Folks, as one individual has says, has said, at the cross, Jesus defanged the serpent. Did you know that? At the cross, Jesus defanged the serpent. I still don't want to get bit by a serpent. I still don't want to even, in most cases, touch one. Snakes are still really intimidating, especially when you think of a seven-headed dragon. But yet that dragon can now no longer do ultimate harm. You get bit by this dragon, by this snake. As a believer, you are not sent to the grave. What happened as a result of this defeat. He was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Satan lost his place. Now the ramifications of, of this defeat are going to be found in verses 9 to 12. What does this mean for Satan? But folks, we serve, or we we. We serve a victorious Savior and we are up against a defeated foe. So does that cause us to be lazy, to be, to be lackadaisical, to become complacent? Absolutely not. Like Jesus said, to the one who conquers, they shall receive the crown of life. But you know what that does mean for you and for me? It means that amidst the need to be watchful and to be cautious and to, to stand our ground and to realize that we have to have that spiritual armor on and that, that there is a spiritual war that is still going on. That there is a difference between being cautious and being fearful. How many of you like to have like campfires? How many of you like to swim? You know, when you swim or when you're around a campfire, especially if you have small children, you're very watchful. You're cautious. In fact, you tell your children, don't get too close to the fire. Don't run. 
One time I told Rachel, I was like sitting there and I was like, you think if I do a sprint, I could jump over that fire? She was like, do not try that. (laughs) You see, a healthy cautiousness and an awareness is that I am going to care, go about my activities and I'm going to have a healthy fear of something versus I'm going to cower in fear and avoid that altogether. And folks, in so many ways, that is how we are to live our Christian life is that we are to be aware and we are to live cautiously, but we are not to cower in fear of the wicked one. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the child has come, he has paid redemption's cost, and he has been caught up to God at his throne. And we await his return. We're going to stop there, and we're going to carry on next week. Let's have a word of prayer.